0: Well, Brian's very generous in his introduction. Uh, Somebody said yesterday, Gleaves may be the director of the Hauenstein Center, but Brian runs the Hauenstein Center. (laughs) Thank you, Brian. That was very generous. Well, to talk about Abraham Lincoln and to tell an audience something new is a daunting task. Uh, One of the things that I think stands out about Abraham Lincoln more than anything else is the heights to which he rose considering the depths in which he started. Booker T. Washington made a comment at one point to the effect that, and he had Lincoln in mind, that we measure the greatness of a human being not just by how high technically they go. You have to look at the starting point. The starting point is essential. And if, if you look at somebody like, um, a, a, and I don't mean this in any sense uh, to diminish the accomplishments of other presidents, but if you look at a George H.W. Bush, for example, who rises, whose father was a senator, and he rises to the presidency. Or you look at George W. Bush. Or you look at John Quincy Adams, and you look at how they rise. Or if you look at a Benjamin Harrison, where it runs in the family. Now, again, I'm not denigrating what these men have done. Uh, They got to the top. They got to the White House. But they started on a platform that was up here to move this far. Not so with Lincoln. Lincoln's down there. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. We're really fortunate in American history to have such contrasting styles of leadership. When you look at George Washington, here was a man who was able to walk into a room and there was unanimous consent among everybody present that he was the leader. Now, how many of us sitting here, if we were to pluck one of us from this crowd, could say that about ourselves? Well, I I mean, humbly speaking, I know I can't, I would have to earn your respect. I I mean, I I might not ever get to that point where unanimously you would say, oh, well, there's your leader. Washington would come into a room, and, you know, four times he was chosen to be unanimously leader of the endeavors that he led, you know, with becoming general of the Continental Army, and then the president of the Constitutional Convention of 1787, and then twice elected president of the Electoral College unanimously. Lincoln presents a very different kind of great leader. Now, he was tall. He stood out at 6'4", 180 pounds. He stood out from other men of his generation. But you can't just have height. And most of our presidents do have height. But that's not enough. So let's go a little bit into what it was about Lincoln that made him able to be a founder of a modern political party, made him able to be the leader he was, made him able to overcome the obstacles that Booker T. Washington referred to to get him to the point he was. Because it is a story that's very human and one that our students can identify with, one that every one of us who has suffered and had hardships to overcome wants to identify with. Because it gives Lincoln this heroic status, as Brian Flanagan pointed out yesterday in his paper, a mythic status a mythic status for a human person to rise that far and overcome that many obstacles. So what's the first thing you would have noticed about Abraham Lincoln were he to come into this room? I think you would notice his personality. He was a solid people person. After you got over the fact that he was tall, after you got over the fact that he was ugly, he regarded himself of course, as ugly. He knew that he was not a handsome man to behold. And the people around him, of course, had made jokes. And he understood that he had to use self-denigrating humor about his own appearance. And he did that splendidly. And it immediately put people at ease. There was a lot of speculation that he had Marfan syndrome, which would have also account for his appearance. Um, I believe a, a, a nerve connective disorder and a heart disorder combined which um, in most people who suffer from it uh, have ears set at, at a greater angle from the head, have the long limbs, and that kind of thing. Uh, doctors have speculated over whether Lincoln had Marfan's syndrome. We could prove it, by the way, if the samples of, of um, Lincoln's DNA at Johns Hopkins uh, were ever tested. But... Um, I think the first thing you would notice is that he had a personality that would be very attractive to you. Now, the question is, where does this come from? This is one of those enigmas about the human person. Where does an attractive personality come from? It's obviously a, charisma is a part of something you're born with, but it's also something that's cultivated. Now, Lincoln, out on the frontier, was isolated. He grew up in this rude, dirt Cabin, uh, and you know, the, the whole thing was 16 by 20, for example, at Knob Creek, 16 by 20 feet, very small, smaller than your living rooms, probably. It was the whole family cabin. And you have to ask yourself, what did he do early in life to take advantage of whatever skills he recognized in himself? One of the things that Abraham Lincoln seemed to possess, and this would become very important for him as a leader, was self awareness. He knew who he was. But how, does, how do any of us know who we are? We know who we are by connecting with others. I've often speculated that Abraham Lincoln fits the description of what my mom used to say that we should be when we walk into a room. You know, I'm sure all of our moms tried to teach us this at one point. There are two kinds of people who walk into the room. There's the kind of person who walks in. They're a little cocky and arrogant. Here I am. You've been waiting for me to get here, haven't you? And then there's the second kind of person who walks into a room and they say, there you are, there you are, there you are, and I can't wait to get to know you. It's that ability to connect with people. And leaders, ladies and gentlemen, great leaders are the second kind of person. Great leaders are not the egos of the first kind of person, not in a democracy where you have to earn respect and trust of the people around you. Lincoln had that quality of coming into a room, and what did he do? He connected with people by putting them at their ease, by making them laugh. He was a genius at making them feel at home with his humor, uh, with his storytelling. What do stories do? Why is it that uh, Paul Harvey has a radio show that's called the rest of the story. He doesn't have a radio story called The Rest of the Statistics. We are meaning-making creatures who need to connect with each other with stories. It's what we do. Lincoln walked into the room, and he would command a room with stories that showed his humanity, showed others' humanity. Immediately, people would fall into line. They wanted to listen to him. He had something to say about the human condition. He could talk about himself in a way that wasn't egotistical. Look at the stories. Look at the transcripts. In India, I would recommend, for example, Michael Burlingame's new biography. Now, oh, my word, it is a difficult biography to read start to finish. The thing came out of Johns Hopkins Press. It's two volumes. It was supposed to be four volumes. <laughs> It's two volumes, and it reads like uh, somebody had gone into the archives and just pulled together all the evidence and, and very masterfully assembled the evidence. But it is, a, it, is, it is a wonderful resource for actually getting at what the source material says. And you can go into Michael Burlingame's or David Herbert Donald's magisterial Pulitzer Prize-winning biography, and you can find these stories that Lincoln told about himself and about other people which connected, connected. So the first thing you would have learned about Abraham Lincoln was that he was a people person, and he connected. And that's what great leaders in a democracy have to have. He had it in spades. And I would humbly suggest that it was his looks that made him have to develop his personality. He was made fun of, of course. Now he got big, but... You know, he, I, I'm sure that he was able to, to command attention just from that size and the way his father says, uh, you know, we're going to put an ax in your hand from the time you're early on, you're going to be a farmer. I mean, Abraham Lincoln knew his responsibilities, certainly, and he could do well what he was supposed to do on the frontier. So that would command some attention, the height, the ability to do what he had to do. But it was the personality he developed. <clears throat> now, that personality was developed marvelously when he decided later to become a lawyer, you know, Lincoln wanted to get off the farm. We'll talk a little bit about his estrangement from his father later. But because he wanted to get off the farm, he would hang around shops, taverns, the general store. When he traveled, he would hang around <coughs> courts. He'd go talk to lawyers, he would talk to judges. He was, he was confident that he could walk up to somebody and begin a conversation with them because he did have that inimitable humor and ability to tell stories on the frontier. There are no TVs, no radios. It's something you can tell your students. But the the people who can tell the stories are the ones that are going to be the most popular in an age when there's not mass entertainment. You're the one who's going to gather the people around you. So Lincoln is gathering people around him as he goes to these different venues, and he decides to become a lawyer, and he finds that he's really good at it. Technically, I've had lawyers tell me who have looked at Lincoln's cases. Technically, if you look at the cases of Lincoln's uh, actual legal defenses and his prosecutions. It makes sense he was a trial lawyer, and oftentimes he represented the biggest corporation of the day, railroads. Oftentimes, when he was out on the circuit for that three months in the spring or that three months in the fall, he technically did not always win on the merits. What is it about us, though? We know sometimes when somebody is telling maybe the more accurate, story, or the more logical story, the more statistically apt story, but our heart ends up going to the person who has the more winsome story, the better story. Juries found in favor of Lincoln's clients again and again, frankly, according to lawyers who've analyzed his work, because of his ability to tell these stories. And he would set his client in a very sympathetic way, and he would use analogies that homespun frontier humor. And out on the circuit, he was very, very popular. Abraham Lincoln was a celebrity on the circuit. He had the largest territory in Illinois in his circuit. He had to travel more miles than anybody else. People enjoyed it when Judge Davis and Abraham Lincoln would get into town, because Lincoln, they knew, would entertain them. And at the taverns at night, They would trade stories. Well, Lincoln was the best storyteller of them all. What a great way to start a political party. What a great way to begin your political career by traveling the largest circuit in the state and making all of these friends. You're the Pied Piper. People want to come to you when you get to town. If people had one complaint about Abraham Lincoln in those taverns, they'd tell their stories. All the guys would be tired from having had some kind of wine or beer or some hard, hard cider or whatever it was they were drinking that night, they'd want to go to bed. And they'd tighten the ropes of the bed. you know. And men would sleep in the same bed. It's not because they were you know, gay. It, it, that, that was the custom. And Lincoln would have two, three, four other guys in this big bed. He didn't uh, take the candle down. He kept reading. He would read. The one thing that irritated the people was that he would read into the night because, you see, he could not turn off his mind. Mm. And already he was thinking, how am I going to connect with you the next day? How am I going to argue that case so that the jury comes over to my client even though we've got this little problem logically? That's what Lincoln was doing. He knew the key is to connect. A people person. That's the first thing you would notice about Lincoln. What's the second thing you would have noticed about Lincoln? As a person, I think if he were to come amidst us, we would notice his passion. The passion would have expressed itself differently at different phases in his life. The passion would have expressed itself as a young man in ambition. Here was a guy who wanted to make something of himself. He did not want to die on a farm, he did not want to just go into anonymity the way so many of his ancestors had. He wanted to make something of himself. And over the years, as you read Lincoln biographies, over the years you see this transformation from sort of a self-centered ambition to put your scent on the world into something much greater that's going to turn into a, a desire to serve a cause, a cause much larger than himself. And when he has all that time to read at night and he's going back and he borrows the Indiana legal code and at the front of the Indiana Legal Code, when he's about a 22-year-old start, starting to read the law, what's in the front of the Indiana Legal Code? The Declaration of Independence. The Constitution. He's reading them. He actually goes... Now, of course, you talk to lawyers in their legal training today? Lawyers today complain, especially if they're interested in constitutional law, they don't take courses in the Constitution. They don't actually go back... In studying the Declaration of Independence and the origin of the Constitution in our Constitutional Convention and the debates over it, the ratifying debates, and you know, the Federalists versus the Anti Federalists and the Federalist Papers and all that. Lincoln was a lawyer who went back, and the most beautiful thing he would read in the Indiana Legal Code was the Declaration of Independence. It would have an enormous influence on shaping him. So you see this, this young man with passion a burning desire to do something, to get out of a dirt floor cabin and not die anonymously on the frontier, but to go out and make his mark. And you all know the story. By the 1850s, our country was living with a contradiction. The Compromise of 1850, trying to, to have us live with popular sovereignty. The Missouri Compromise not yet repealed, saying, no, we're going to live with 3630. No slavery above that. One is a geographic distinction. The other is a democratic distinction. What principle is going to be running our country? Is it geography above 3630, no slavery, or is it democracy, the vote? Lincoln knew that a principle divided against itself could not stand. We're pushing west. Is it going to be geography? Democracy. Is it going to be principle based on the Declaration of Independence? Lincoln is pulling all this stuff together. Think about Riding the circuit, that large circuit in Illinois as a young lawyer, and having all that time on your hands. You don't have uh, 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 Sirius and uh, XM Radio and Rush Limbaugh and all those things. Lonely, lonely hours, and he filled his mind, and it shaped his passion to do something. So you know that by the 1850s he had transformed himself from somebody who was seeking maybe vainglory, same way Washington did when he was a young man, and moving beyond that to do something truly great for his country because he perceived a problem that if we were going to be the last best hope of mankind, we damn well better figure out what we were. Are we a democracy that tolerates slavery, or are we a republic that fulfills the vision of the founders? That's the ambition. That's the passion that Lincoln acquired and we would note that in our conversation with him. I think the third thing we would notice about Abraham Lincoln is that he had imagination. Now, this imagination expressed itself in many key ways. We see the imagination, certainly, in the storytelling. And biographers are very quick to try to tease out, when they read all the stories about Lincoln, which stories he made up and which stories just you know, pretty much came down and he transmuted them some way. Lincoln had a tremendous capacity to imagine, to see things that aren't actually physically there in front of you. That's what the good storyteller does to entertain. He takes you out of your tough existence for a few minutes. He transports you someplace. To make somebody laugh is usually to separate yourself from your existence a little bit. It presents a little bit of irony about your condition. Lincoln was a master at these things because he had the imagination, the vision to see what was not there. Now, that's on a small scale. This is personal interactions. What about the big-scale vision that really defines a statesman? Statesmen have to have vision. They have to have that capacity to imagine what is not there and what needs to be improved. Well, he certainly had it when you look at the way he viewed this country. Now, most people, when they study Lincoln, and certainly when we teach it, we emphasize the North-South connection. And Lincoln fixed it in his mind that this nation has to be united, North and South, so that we can survive. It's the same issues that Hamilton had confronted at the Constitutional Convention. It's the same things Henry Clay had said in all of his writings, working out the compromises that the great compromisers himself had worked out. They knew the country had to to have the glue to stay together. But Lincoln also had an east-west vision. It was a continental-wide vision. Scott, in the previous talk, spoke about it a little bit. Several times uh, it has come up in this uh, conference. Lincoln had the ability to say that we were going to be the greatest country on the earth because he could see it. And he knew certain things had to happen to make that come about. He knew, for example, that the East Coast and the West Coast had to be knit together with a railroad using the latest technology. He was a technology geek. He was fascinated with the telegraph. You know, he, he fought the first telegraph war, really a large-scale war in human history. But he knew that we had to knit the country together so that there'd be the expansion of a free republic. And he knew that to support the expansion of a free republic, not only would you have a railroad to move people and goods and their services so that they could enter a larger economy, they wouldn't just be subsistence farmers on the back 40, you know, growing what they could and then just sort of sustaining themselves and their immediate neighbors. No, those railroads enable these farmers, these citizen yeoman republicans now, to enter a global marketplace to ship their goods and then those goods end up going any number of places, and then they, through their wealth, get the goods in return. He sees this great economic empire. An empire, perhaps, that would not just acquire lands, but would acquire wealth, that would grab wealth increasingly from around the world because... American farmers, American manufacturers were producing what the world need. He had this great vision for this that he supported also, if you look at the Homestead Act, people actually to go out and populate the West. And then if you look at the Morrill Act and the great land-grant universities, and we're very blessed in this state to have Michigan State University, founded in 1855 before the Morrill Act, but they claim that they are the first land-grant university, and uh, we honor them as such at Michigan State. So it's really a a remarkable legacy that Lincoln gives us, not just in terms of North and South and preserving the Union, and of course, in the hierarchy of things, we would all emphasize that, but also East and West, that he saw that we would become a global economic superpower, and that is a very key sense in which he was the founder of a modern political party. He understood that this country would continue to grow if we did not step on our own progress in our March West and in solving our, our problems with labor and slavery. He had that great vision. What would be something else that Lincoln had that we would notice? Okay, we've talked a little bit so far about the fact that he was a people person. He connected with us. He came into a room and he connected with us. He told us stories. He made us laugh. We've talked a little bit about his passion, that as a young man we would identify as perhaps reckless ambition, but as he got older and older, we would admire for his ability to turn that ambition into something that was service to others, leadership as service. So what am I saying? Leadership is relationship in point one, leadership is service in point two, imagination, this capacity to see where this country was going to go and realizing that for whatever reason, whatever mysterious reason, He was in a position to help this country achieve a a larger vision, east-west as well as north-south. He was in the crossroads to do something great. He had the imagination to grasp it and to act on it. But none of this would count if he didn't have something else. And that was his character. Abraham Lincoln knew he possessed a strong character and when you know his biography, you certainly see why. Let's talk a little bit about his origins. Abraham Lincoln comes from a, as I say, a cabin. Some people just, it's controversial. Some historians say that he was even poor. His family was poor by the standards of the, of the Kentucky and Indiana frontier. Other historians point out that his father, Thomas Hanks, at one time, had two horses, had titled two pieces of property. Now he lost them. But, but the point is, this was a very insecure existence, and you went in and out of relative prosperity. I mean, prosperity on this frontier. When you actually go and look at these cabins, it's not in any sense that we would call prosperity. Lincoln had to overcome tremendous material poverty to get where he got in life. He overcame, of course, being isolated, not having access to books, going to an ABC school for exactly one year of his life. He had one year of formal schooling. I always make the distinction between education and schooling. Lincoln was poorly schooled but well-educated. I always correct students when they say that he only had one year of, of education. No, he had about 56 years of education, one year of schooling. Abraham Lincoln's schooling, as you know, taught him Reading, writing, and ciphering to the rule of three. So what was this incredible mind doing? He was drawn not to the farming life. Why, he didn't even like the hunting on the frontier. Just let me have a little digression here. When he was seven years old, he was alone in the cabin, and uh, there were some turkeys out. And, you know, he was testing. All boys, like all girls, test themselves. How do I become a man? How do I measure up to my dad? My dad's so critical of me. And so he shot the turkey, and he felt so bad about it. From the age of seven on, he claims he never again shot anything larger than a rabbit, as it made him feel so bad. This is a kid who did not fit into the frontier, in other words. This is why he wanted to get off that farm and go to the store, he wanted to be a surveyor, he wanted to be postmaster, he wanted to take that barge down the Mississippi River. Whatever it took, he wanted to get off the farm. Of course, he eventually, as you know, becomes a lawyer and a politician and then a statesman. But the point is that Lincoln had the character to know, okay, I'm different. I'm a different kid. You know, he was the kind of kid who would go to church on, on Sunday when they could get to church. His parents were very religious. He'd come back and he would weave his legs into the fence rails that he'd help his pa make. And he would repeat the sermon of what happened at church. And he would do it better. And the kids would laugh. Here was a kid who knew he had special gifts, but he also had to overcome so many things that would, would have beat down people who weren't as strong. When you think about the fact that his, he had a little brother die shortly after childbirth, then his mother dies of the milk sick, contaminated milk, because the cow had eaten uh, a noxious weed. Now think about this. Let me paint a little vivid picture for you. Knob Creek, Indiana. That cabin has been measured at 16 by 20 feet. You imagine your mom in there dying for a week, a writhing, terrible death, very painful death. And you're just all sitting in there, trying to nurse if you can, doing your chores. But you can never get the image of her pain, her swelling body, the sweat, I think it was in October, October 16th, the sweat, the, the tongue gets swollen and black. Physicians have described what the milk sick does to people. and it's not pretty. And here you have this nine-year-old kid watching this. And she is delirious a lot of the time. And then she dies. And you have to help build your mom's coffin with your dad. You're the boy. So you take the lathe, you're doing the planing, you're doing the whittling. Um, It's been speculated, you know, what did Abraham look like as a nine-year-old kid as he's whittling the mortise and tendons for putting that coffin together? What must have been going through his head as he was thinking about the human condition, why his very mother, the person who had brought him into this world, was no more. And he was left with a father who was very critical, a father who criticized him for not going out, why aren't you like the other boys? Why don't you hunt more? The deer out there, why didn't you shoot it? Why don't you help me more in farming? Why are you always going off and reading? We got more chores to do. I'm gonna beat you if I catch you reading again. That's Abraham Lincoln's childhood. Ladies and gentlemen, what I'm suggesting is that Abraham Lincoln not only had to overcome material privation, he had to overcome emotional poverty, emotional poverty with the losses in his life. And we're just beginning. I mean, if, if we had time, I could really sink us into a depression and talk about all kinds of death. I mean, how about the death after his mother? Of his sister. His sister died a year and a half after she was married in childbirth. She would have been about uh, 20 years old at that point. 20, 21 years old. Lincoln was two years younger. He was still a teenager. Again, trouble with his father who's left you, you lose your, your mom you lose your sister you lose a baby brother now of course it was a godsend when Thomas Lincoln goes out and he finds Lincoln a stepmother she is a wonderful woman who encouraged his reading said this about him she had such an interesting comment and I think it's helpful for those of us to teach to keep this in mind Said Abraham seemed slow he was a slow reader and he seemed to be a slow learner but she said she used to watch him struggle with something. And he'd put the book down after he read it. And he would work out whatever it was that he was trying to read. A line from the Bible, a line from Shakespeare, Euclid's geometry, whatever it was. He was teaching himself. This guy's an autodidact. And he would work it out. And she would say, and then she would talk to him. Uh, it, stepmother Sarah would talk to Abraham. What 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 are you reckon over there? What are you reading? And he would explain it. He would put it all back together in his own way. And it'd take him. He'd take his sweet time to figure it out. But then once he had it, he locked it in. Now what a marvelous way to learn! And he was confident in that manner of learning. and That's how he taught himself uh, to go through law you know, through through a legal education and everything else was because he was confident in his ability to pick up information on his own time and in his own way. And that's humbling for us as teachers we need to remember that but he had this character that he where he knew it was he was different he had a character that could overcome the emotional poverty of many deaths a lot of speculation has has uh, been shown over the relationship with the first so-called love of his life and rutledge some Historians swear that it's a mythical romance. Others, and I think the tendency now is more to say, no, there was something there because Lincoln had to cope with a liability in his own temperament. He was prone to depression. And you see his first major bout of depression in his 20s when Ann Rutledge dies. So depressed that he throws himself on her grave because he cannot stand the thought of rain and snow falling on her gravesite on that mound that depressed so depressed that his friends like joshua speed who knew him best as a young man said you know we need to take your knives away from you so depressed that the speculation is that, that poem that appeared in um, Salem, uh, new salem springfield about three four months after Anne died was a poem about suicide. It was anonymously written, but it has all the marks of Abraham Lincoln's writing. That depressed. He had at least six major episodes of what today would be called clinical depression, where he would take to his bed Abraham Lincoln. Here we imagine this guy. he's ambitious and you know he's smart, and we imagine a guy who's a fully competent adult. But he would literally, he went to Joshua Speed's family's house, and he lay in bed. He was so grief-stricken. Is this not a guy we can relate to? All of us have had bouts of depression. All of us have had setbacks. All of us have felt like it was our last day. We don't know that about Washington. I deliberately contrasted Lincoln with Washington at the beginning of this talk. We don't know that intimacy of detail about Washington. But we know it about Lincoln. And that's why we identify with him. And that's why you know, we, we, we learn so much more about a leader in our system of government who has to earn trust and has to reveal some of his humanity, or her humanity, to lead us. So the strong character is really important in Lincoln. Lincoln also, imagine, we think politics is rough and dirty today. <coughs> You've heard from the other speakers, and surely you know about the vitriol that was uh, conveyed about Lincoln's personal appearance. He was called a baboon in the press. In the press, the cartoons, go to to Springfield. There is a place in the museum, the Lincoln Museum there, that shows all of the newspaper editorial (coughs) cartoons about Lincoln. And you will find them scurrilous. You would never see a John McCain... You, you would never see George W. Bush portrayed in such a vicious way as Abraham Lincoln was portrayed. Here's a guy who had a strong ego. He could take it. He had that spark in himself, and he knew that he would be able, if, if he could just position himself, he had the strength of character to overcome that material privation, the emotional poverty, and to be able to do something truly significant in his life because he wanted to I would say a, a another quality that Lincoln had that you would notice very quickly was his ability to communicate with you now it's implied of course in the storytelling but if, if Lincoln had a serious message for you he could write it and his public letters are very persuasive and powerful or he could speak it in a group hundreds of people and and convince them that his course was the way to go. Where did this come from? Lincoln had this, this great literary ability. We knew that he we know that he read the family Bible there in that rude cabin. We know that in his downtime he was always trying to improve his mind. He would read Shakespeare's plays, he would read Bobby Burns's poetry, he read Aesop's fables, he read Defoe. Um, We know that uh, he was taken with uh, Byron's poetry at a certain point in his life, more the romantic part. Uh, Here's a man who go back to Shakespeare. It's been speculated. (laughs) This is is a very interesting piece of speculation. I wish I could think of the historian who thought it might might be Burlingame. So I was reading him as I prepared for this talk. Does anybody here know what what, uh, Lincoln's favorite Shakespeare play was? Macbeth. What is the? I mean, outside of Lear, say. Uh, what 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 would you say one of the most tragic Shakespeare plays is? I mean, most people would choose Macbeth. What's Macbeth about? Macbeth is about an ambitious, loveless, married couple. It's interesting speculation, Jim. You see exactly where this is going. <laughs> And I'm not going to speculate too much on Lincoln's marriage. Um, she was very ambitious for him and was a powerful force for you know getting him out the door and keeping him on track and advancing him. Um, but she also was a powerful detraction for him and his career because she was very temperamental. And it's been suggested that she had hints of mental illness early on that once she lost three of her four kids, I mean, this would do a number on anybody, I think. Losing a child is terribly difficult. So even in the 19th century, if you lose you know, three of your four boys, this would be horrible. So um, my heart goes out to Mary. I, I mean, I, maybe they did have a rough marriage for a number of reasons, but um, they both suffered greatly in having to overcome their losses. I think that ability to communicate though also comes from not just the, the reading and the lawyering, but also again, this ability, you know, he had suffered so much, he understood us, and this brings me back to the original point. As in, I, we come back to this point that he has the ability to connect with people. Now, there are many other qualities that we would notice about Abraham Lincoln were he to come in our midst. We would certainly notice his focus, his ability to to prioritize what needed to be done and, and stay focused on those things, although he laughed. He, he said that um, he had no system as a lawyer, which is sort of funny. Um, he, he said that he had to find partners always, like Billy Herndon, who... Um, and What did he say about Billy Herndon? He said, Billy Herndon was a, a man with system, but a bad lawyer. I was a good lawyer, but I had no system. He said, I later learned that Billy Herndon had no system, but was a good lawyer, so he disappointed me twice. (laughs) Lincoln's humor. Uh, But he could prioritize what needed to be done. And that was an important quality to his leadership. But all of these things go into making Abraham Lincoln this mythic hero. Controversial, no question about it. Somebody we will continue to debate, no no doubt. Somebody who we will continue to misunderstand positively. Here's a man that we know a lot about that ain't so, and a man that we don't know much about that we should know. Here's a man, I mean, we know the challenge of this as teachers. Here's a man who's criticized for things that aren't his fault. For example, if you look at the whole suspension of the writ of habeas corpus, everybody says, well, you know, he shouldn't have done that. He was violating the Constitution. Well, in what sense was he violating the Constitution? Not suspending the writ of habeas corpus. The Constitution indeed provides for that. But what branch of government gets to do it? It's in Article I. It's the Congress that gets to suspend the writ writ of habeas corpus. And in a posthumous court decision, so after Lincoln is assassinated, the Supreme Court does say that presidents, henceforward, will need the assent of Congress to suspend habeas corpus. That's the criticism... That Lincoln did not work with the Congress, not that, he, that, that, not that it's unconstitutional. It is constitutional to suspend habeas corpus, but who's the agent in that process? And to preserve the balance of power, Lincoln was a strong president. The Supreme Court afterwards said the president and Congress need to work together on that. So is he going to be controversial? Yes. And a lot of these controversies are because we don't do enough reading. We don't understand the history well enough. And our job as teachers, of course, is to get out there and make sure that some of these controversies uh, are at least informed if you're going to enter the battle. And, of course, because I am a Texan and a Southerner in sensibilities, I was raised with a, a lot of um, anti-Lincoln rhetoric growing up. But you know what? I, I ran across, I'm going to leave you with this little personal story. I don't very often tell you the tell audience's personal story, but... I had the occasion to see one of my childhood pictures recently. You know, in the old days, uh, classroom pictures, they still do this where they take the whole class, and we're all sitting at our desks. I was in the front row, and I had a book underneath. And so I'm a six-year-old kid with this book underneath, and I couldn't, you know, so I took out the magnifying glass. Here's a six-year-old kid in Houston, Texas, southern city, before, and this will betray my age, this is before the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. So I'm living in a Houston in which there's separate water fountains, separate facilities for black folks and white folks. And what was that book? As I magnified it, it was Dolaire's Lincoln. Mm. And so already as a six-year-old kid, I was, I was reading Lincoln in, a, in hostile territory. <laughs> <laughs> he attracted me then, and he attracts me today. And uh, I hope you've caught the fever. Thank you very much. A, yes, sir, a question. Uh,
1: yesterday oh, he was referred to as a deist. And I think I was watching PBS on Lincoln and they were talking about the evolution of faith in his life. Could um, you kind of give us a quick summary
0: of how that plays out as far as Lincoln was probably very much a non-believer as a kid, or certainly a skeptic. We would call him a skeptic because some of those little uh stories that he would tell while his his legs were woven into the the fence rails were making fun of the preachers and the absurdity of the universe, no doubt. And he'd get kids to laugh uh, at miracles and things like that. But there's no question that suffering and going through the life he lived, and then by the time you get to the second inaugural, there is no question that this is a man who in some sense is a believer. He believes in providence. Uh, It's mysterious to him. He's not a churchgoer. He, he's not somebody who would sign up for a denomination. But his his religious faith is a matter of fascination, I think, for people who want to plumb the depths of this man and try to get to know him better. He was saying, I've looked for what are the hints of a growing faith. And I've looked for the hints. And in the, I believe in the Peoria speech and in some of the speeches of the 1850s where he's wrestling with the expansion of slavery into new territories, You do do see Lincoln saying, if we don't resolve this, it's in the hands of God. I would argue 10 years before his second inaugural address where he talks about an inscrutable God, I would argue that already in the 1850s he's wrestling with the mysteriousness of providence. He, He knows, or he senses that he has a special role in this world. And Providence put him in a place to do something at this crossroads, east, west, north, south, that I spoke of. But he also believes that about his country. I mean, he really, you, you can tell that, that there's, this, there's this divine element in it that's very important to him to get right. He knows that both sides are praying for victory in the war, but he knows that neither will be granted fully their wish uh, in their their most heartfelt prayer and the groanings of the Holy Spirit, or however he would have thought about that interiorly. But we just know that that he struggled with this, and it's one of those questions, you know, we imagine what Lincoln would be like. What would we notice about him? Is he sort of a cross between Ronald Reagan and George Washington? Or, I mean, how do we, you know, the jokester on the one hand who puts you at ease with stories, but something something remote about him that's hard to penetrate. But on the other hand... um, I guess the question I would have is if he had lived longer, if he was somebody who could have written his memoirs, say, what a literary work. We have Grant's memoirs that came out of this period that Mark Twain helped Grant on. What if Lincoln had had the opportunity to write memoirs and settle some of these questions that we have had about him? Now, of course, he would have been a great editor of his own work. <laughs> I'm sure he would have colored it and told stories better than they actually were in the, the happening. But one of the questions I would have had was uh, to put to him was his 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 religious struggles. I think they were profound.
1: Should he ever comment on Darwin's theory? Because I know it had just come out
0: of the Yeah, in the 1850s. 1850s. Uh, that's a great question. And uh, I think the editorial cartoons poking fun at him that made him into a baboon, yeah, those were comments yeah, that probably were colored with a little bit of Darwinian theory about Abraham Lincoln, but I don't, I'm not aware, and I'll have to go back to Michael Burlingame's exhaustive biography to see if I could find something. Very good question, since they'd be contemporaries. Yes, Greg.
1: A question maybe on leadership. When we talk uh, today about uh, George W. Bush, um, uh, there's some talk that perhaps in the future we may look back and think of his leadership differently as though leadership can be reappraised or revised, which would suggest that in the moment, maybe leadership is not self-evident. When you, when you look at Lincoln and leadership, um, and I can anticipate what you'll say based on, on your presentation, but is leadership under Lincoln both self-evident in the moment as well as uh, receiving a positive reappraisal as historians look back at him? It's, is, there, is, there, is that a useful way to consider leadership? Can, can leadership be reappraised, where I don't have it, it's not self-evident, but yet be regarded differently?
0: I think that that is a very uh, wonderful thought, because we know that a number of presidents have been evaluated more positively with time, and some have gone down a few notches. But if you look, for example, at Gerald R. Ford, our, our hometown hero here. Here's somebody who was criticized. No president experienced a more precipitous dive in Gallup Poll's approval rating than the day after President Ford pardoned Richard Nixon. He lost something like between 20 and 30 points overnight. It's never happened before or since, to that extent, since presidential polling began in the middle 30s with Franklin Roosevelt. So we know that Ford took it on the chin A lot of people thought it cost them re-election in 1976, and yet by 2000, 2001, you have the John F. Kennedy Award, Profile Encourage Award, go to President Ford, and Caroline Kennedy and Senator Edward Kennedy standing there praising a man. And Senator Edward Kennedy saying, I was wrong about you, Jerry. I was so wrong about you, and I apologize. Now, that's interesting, we know that Richard Reeves and Bob Woodward and a number of journalists who were very perceptive and writing very actively at the time changed their opinions. Now, this happened over a period of less than 30 years, about 25 years. So if it can happen to Ford in 25 years or so, in a 24-7 news cycle, uh, it can certainly happen to any president. We know what happened also with Truman and John Adams. A guy named David McCullough came along and all of a sudden resurrected the reputations of these guys. Truman Truman went out with among the lowest approval ratings of any modern president, down the low 20s, depending on the poll you're looking at in the week. And yet now he's considered a near-great president, plain speaking, made tough decisions, set the paradigm for the Cold War that would enable us to keep from uh, surrendering or blowing ourselves up. He's considered a hero. Same with John Adams. Eisenhower, you know, Fred Greenstein's book on the hidden hand presidency comes out. And in the 70s and 80s, all of a sudden, a generation after Eisenhower leaves office, we're reevaluating him. Um, So Lincoln has certainly experienced ebbs and flows and will continue to. The the latent leadership qualities that maybe were not recognized at the time do come out over the course of time. And I've often said... ...not a political statement. I am not making a partisan statement pro or con with George W. Bush. But the historian hat in me just says, just wait. We don't know what future history holds. We don't know if the economy is going to get a lot worse because of future actions. We don't know if we're going to be attacked on our soil repeatedly. Um, That's when you'll know how George W. Bush will be evaluated. What's going to happen over the next 20 years? That will influence... George W. Bush's evaluation. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yes, sir. Peter.
1: Um, Thinking of Lincoln as the founder of a uh, modern political party, uh, certainly the Free Soil Party and the Republican Party, as it started, would be considered very liberal for its time. And within a relatively short period of time, the Republican Party becomes very conservative. And uh, so there's a transition. Where does this transition take place, and how much of it happens before Lincoln is assassinated?
0: Well, of course, the Republican Party becomes a, a split in two uh, under Lincoln, and you have the radical Republicans, and then you have the more moderate Republicans. The split, of course, um, is divides the whole country. I mean, the whole Uh, Policy Reconstruction policy, of course, is debated. So the Republican Party suffers for that. But the Democratic Party likewise turns around. I mean, the Democrats in the 19th century were the Imperial Party. They were the party always expanding. You know, the party, you know, go attack Mexico. And it was the Whigs. It was always, the Whigs always saying, hold back, we don't want Imperial Party. The Whigs will be pro-business, anti-Imperial. The Republicans, pro-business. What have they become? I mean, some people in recent years have said the Republican Party has become uh, certainly quasi-imperial. Uh, These transformations are fascinating. Um, and if you compare a Republican Party platform now with one from, say, 150 years ago, look at look at tariffs. Republicans used to be the party of high tariffs to please northern industrialists. Well, now, of course, Republicans want to be the party of low taxes and um, you know, um, if you look at another, um, look at uh, government improvements, internal improvements. Whigs and Republicans were always voting for internal improvements in the economy. The government would pick winners and losers and uh, help railroads and canals and telegraphs and all kinds of, of corporations. Now, of course, um, the Democratic Party is considered the one taking the lead on big public works projects. This is the fascination of being a historian. I love it. I mean, you cannot keep still. You cannot just depend on the last book you read, and you cannot just depend on the nostrums you heard, you know, uh, some entertaining speaker say once. I mean, you've got to keep working hard to understand how we got where we are. I'm sure that's what attracted many of you and keeps you in the teaching profession. It certainly attracts me as well. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed your audience very much. Bye-bye.